Hello and welcome to YHTV's Trinity of Life. This is episode 64. I'm Christina Suzuma, your host for this program. Thank you so much for joining me as I continue to explore the wonderful world of healing arts, meditation, therapies, and the many modalities of helping each of us find balance in our individual journeys. We're always excited to meet those who are on the leading edge of creating change on this planet. Today our show is Healing of Chronic Pain Through Compassion. Now, at any time during this presentation, you can feel free to ask a question or make a comment just by scrolling down on your screen and typing it into the comment box. We'll make sure that our special guest um, receives it and is able to answer you. Today, our special guest, and we'd like to welcome Lama Jigmi Gyatsu. He's a fully accomplished meditation master who has studied and practiced every sect of Buddhism as well as the many sects of Judaism, Christianity, Hinduism, Taoism, as well as New Age and Wicca. Now, he's studied and practiced spiritual counseling, hypnosis, neurolinguistic programming, and neuroassociative conditioning. That's quite a lot, all wrapped up in one monk, don't you think? <laughs> I'd like to welcome Lama Jigmi Gyatso. Thank you. Hello, Thank Lama you. Jigme. How are you today? Good. That's actually Jigme, like oh, dancing Jigme. a jig in the month of May. In the, oh, you see? And that's what I'm sure you do. Now, All the time. Now, you have to share with us your f- actual full title. It's a, it's a mouthful. It's, it's great. Winning, so my full title in badly pronounced Tibetan is Tertan Lama Jigme Gyatso Rime Mani Patantrika Rinpoche, Rinpoche, which is also a winning answer in Scrabble. <laughs> now, you are also, you, you like to be known as the Laughing Llama, right? That's one of my nicknames. <laughs> it's much better than, hey, freaking the skit, sit down. Now, now, who did someone give you the name? Um, right, it's, um, it came to me from... Well, that's a bit of a story. So Go for give, it. Oh, okay. So here's the deal. In uh, There are many schools of Buddhism. In Tantric Buddhism, in Tibet, there is the idea of the Tertan. And what a Tertan is, is someone who is able to psychically receive, um, for want of a better term, psychic downloads from the Buddhas and the Ascended Masters and things like that. That tradition first began in northern India many centuries ago, both for Mm. monks and laity, and like the Dharma, it too migrated to the Tibetan plateau. Um, I'm considered a rather controversial monk. Most monks are fundamentalist. I'm very liberal. Um, And amongst the fundamentalist monks, there's a sense of elitism, where, oh, yes, being a teraton is for special people. And of course, not you. But one of the things I teach all my students is that we're all capable of learning how to dialogue with the Buddhas, ask yes or no questions, receive yes or no answers, and by training that consistently, typically within three quarters of a year, people are able to start receiving psychic downloads. Mm. And so I actually teach uh, the three levels of oracle training uh, within the framework of a weekly meditation class. So within, I, usually by the end of the first quarter, 
or the beginning of the second quarter, we get Oracle training. And um, it's a lot of fun because <laughs> one, of the, one of the things I like to do is make people independent of the teacher. You know, so that if I was hit, heaven forbid, by a steamroller, <laughs> my students can still learn and grow and thrive and get the advice they need by dialoguing directly with the Buddhas. Hmm. And that's just one of many reasons why clearly I must have flunked cult leader school. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, laughing llama. <laughs> um, yeah. How, how did you get into all this? I mean, I ran into you. We had a, a lovely meeting in my favorite farmer's market, of course, where, you know, of course, I believe that uh, all that wonderful greenery and live food is flourishing and helps feed our souls. Um, what? Uh, how did you come into this? What, what made you choose to become a monk? I mean... Where are you from? Uh, how, was it your childhood? Was it some trauma? <laughs> well, I was found on a sunny day upon a rock, sunning myself with the other lizards. <laughs> no, so, once again, long story made short. Here's the deal. Um, um, this is my ninth lifetime on the path. And um, at the end of my eighth lifetime, I was quite frustrated. And so I took... I was quite frustrated with my rate of spiritual growth and that of my peers and the basic state of, of Buddhism at large. And so I took all my good karma and I aimed it at the intention that in my next life, this life right now, I would receive all the circumstances and tools required to accomplish the path in this life and help others do likewise quicker and easier than ever before. And then because I was a completed yet, I sealed it with the phrase, whatever it takes. And if you want to make the universe laugh, that's what you say. Oh, sure, universe, whatever it takes. Let's go for it. And that's what the universe does. With the same tenderness that a big brother shows a little brother. <laughs> or the, the, you know, or as in, in fraternities when they haze the pledges. So I was born... <laughs> Into a very challenged body with a very challenged family circumstance. And the only way I was able to survive that cavalcade of nightmares was to embrace the spiritual path pragmatically, as if it was a paradigm of practical magic. Mm. And so whatever spiritual tools I could get my grubby little hands upon... I would try to apply as practically as possible, you know, so that I could be, a, as a kid, so I could be a good kid and a smart kid and a happy kid. Um, that was very, very important to me. And of course, when I became... Wow, that, that's, some, that's really something to be aware of at such a young age. Well, one of the was nice... That almost sounds like it was a form of survival for you. One of the really cool things about... Um, surviving child abuse is that you get to see what a real monster is and you get to see people lose their minds. You get to see people have with little or no impulse control and you get to say, Oh, that's what I don't want to be. I want to be the opposite of that. Um, I wanna, or as they say in 
as my Tibetan teachers say, the virtuous opponent of that or the good opposite of that. In fact, that was even explored in an episode of classic Star Trek with our friend William Shatner. <laughs> a Trekkie fan. We have a monk that is not just Jewish, but he's a Trekkie fan. <laughs> Live long and prosper. That's what I say. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So, so you continued in childhood, and when did you decide to go study in Tibet? <laughs> Actually, I did not go to Tibet because that's where they keep the snow. It's far too cold. <laughs> so were you raised here in Southern I, California? I was born and no, I was actually born in San Francisco, but raised in Southern California. Mm. So I was about, gosh, three or four. Um, so veritably my entire life, I've been in Southern California. And here in Southern California, I enthusiastically explored Reformed Buddhism. And I had a bar mitzvah and everything. Um, then I explored um, fundamentalist uh, Christianity from the fundamentalist perspective. Um, for many years, very enthusiastically. And then I explored um, New Age um, and Taoism and Hinduism. And funny story, I remember when I had turned the corner after my uh, sampling, my approximate 10 year sampling of Christian fundamentalism, I was at a bookstore. Yes, kids, before there was Amazon, there were bookstores <laughs> you could walk into. And it must have only been the Bodhi tree because that was the only thing around here. <laughs> well, this, is, this is way back in. in uh, um, San Diego County, there was something called the Bookstar, S-T-A-R, huge bookstore. And I said, you know, tell me, where's your bookshelf for Hinduism? And there were two shelves. Where's your bookshelf for Taoism? Oh, one and a half shelves. Well, that's bite-sized. That's doable. Where's your bookshelf for Buddhism? Oh, those two aisles. No, that was too much work. I actually avoided Buddhism as much as I could. But because of my karmic connection with it, it was kind of like, <laughs> so there I was, I stumbled upon a book with a dubious title of <laughs> um, Profound Riches, the Psychocosmic Power, which is a silly book. It was very written from the New Age point of view, but they described a psychic carrier wave of the six-syllable mantra, Om Mani Padme Hum. And even though I began exploring that from the most venal of motivations, that's the six-syllable mantra of the Buddha of compassion. And so like a fish with a line, they hooked me. <laughs> and like Al Pacino in Godfather 3, they pulled me back in again. <laughs> I think we have a closet actor here, too. <laughs> no, for a gym, pretty hammy. I'll tell you, I don't want to be an actor. I just want to be a silly llama who makes people laugh. Because you know, when you laugh, it heightens our hypersuggestibility. And it sort of greases the wheels of our own learning and helps us to get out of our prefrontal cortex and be more whole brain or whole body, which is far more ideal to... Um, Learn thing with learn things with the intention of being transformed and rapidly evolved. Mm -hmm. Oh, uh, I believe in laughter. 
I'm one for it. <laughs> so, so continue your story. So here you start to get immersed in Buddhism. Oh yeah, very. Um, I had the very good fortune. Um, basically, I could be said is I invested all my good karma from this life and previous lives in my spiritual training, and so that means I received teachers from the Theravada school. I received teachings from the Mahayana. Oh, let me rephrase that: the Theravada school of South Asia the Mahayana school of East Asia, and the Tantrayana school of North Asia. So I really, really lucked out. And even in Tibet, I was able to receive directly and indirectly teachings for the four major sects, uh, sects with a T. So I really was super, super fortunate in my training. Um, and my former wife, bless her heart, was half Indian. And her dad was from Bengal. And she was a, a splendid cook. And so what would happen is I would drive visiting teachers. You know, I'd say, you give me dharma, I'll give you bacon butter. Oh, it's pretty good. <laughs> that's what they'd say. Oh, bacon butter. Yes. So, <laughs> and, that, and that's one of the ways I received teachings, also through correspondence and, uh, and the like. But at a certain point in my path, it was so cool. All these people started coming out of the woodwork and saying, man, you got to start to body test. I had psychiatrists tell me this, physicians, naturopaths, hippies, homeless people. It was just like um, the Pied Piper. You know, people were just coming to me all over saying, you got a body test. Body test, what does that mean? Body body testing is a simple thing. Like, for instance, um, if you were to take your thumb... And, okay. middle, and your other thumb and middle finger and form a link. And this is what I like to call the, there we go, the link of two, uh, the chain of two links. Is that pretentious or what? The chain of two links. And you create the intention. Um, I pull my hands apart. If it's difficult, that means no. And if it's easy, that means yes. So that's a body test. It's kind of ungainly. But with practice, it becomes easier and easier. And we can use things like, you know, is chocolate my friend? Am I allergic, you know, to rat poison? Things like that, you know, just to, you know. So it's very, very popular uh, to do things It's um, for health and nutrition. And some people do it for life decisions. Well, at this point, I've been practicing diligently. I think I I had completed two or three, three three-year retreats at this point, which is a big deal in Tibet. and so at this point, I'm all, listen, I'm not going to ask my body nothing. I'm going to ask the Buddha of compassion. I'm going to ask the Buddha of compassion's teacher. I'm going to ask all the Buddhas, all the questions I want in this yes or no format. So instead of going to my body or my higher self, I just went to my spiritual guides. And I, I, I spent years forging intimacy with them through various and sundry spiritual practices. So now I've finally found a, a pragmatic tool to communicate with them in a non-visceral way. And I learned how to do simple things like the two-armed body test or the thumb and finger body test and eventually the two-finger body test, which is great if you're a former bass player. (laughs) 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 And um, so after, after... so I began with that, this learning how to ask yes or no questions. And it was great because 
I learned this when I was going through a very ugly divorce where I wanted to remain friends with my former wife and she wanted me to stop breathing on a cellular level. So, <laughs> and, and, you know, I, I, here's what I say. I say it's fun to date attorneys, but divorcing attorneys, not so much with the fun. <laughs> so it was very, very difficult. I was disabled. I, you know, was, you know, set about by financial and physical obstacles. And um, so I was in this very high stress circumstance. Um, you know, it's not just imagine, sometimes it's imagined stress, sometimes the bear really is chasing you through the woods. And that was a great time for me to really learn and embrace and ex- experiment with the body, the uh, divine applied, divinely applied body testing. And um, because I was dealing with, with really high stakes issues and it was great. And after a while, one of the questions everyone has is, well, how do I know I'm not deceiving myself? How do I know I'm not just telling myself what I want to hear? Well, if you ask the right questions, eventually you hear things you don't want to hear. <laughs> and that's a great um, affirmation that you're plugging into something much bigger and broader and deeper and older than oneself. So it took me a while. And, and in, in the Nyingma sect of Tibetan Buddhism, they say there are 10 levels on the Bodhisattva path. The level in Sanskrit is Bhumi, with the 10th level, or Bhumi, being full enlightenment. And so, of course, being a neurotic inbred Jew, I was really goal-oriented. <laughs> now, in Zen Buddhism, they say, oh, yes, don't have a goal. And that really comes more from Taoism than Buddhism, because in Buddhism, they say, yes, have a goal. What are you doing, for God's sakes? In fact, in one of the oldest Buddhist scriptures, the Satipatthana Sutta, um, Buddha says, hey, when you learn this technique, if you apply it correctly, you can accomplish full enlightenment, you know, in less than seven lives, in less than seven years, in less than seven months, in less than seven weeks, it can even be done in seven days. So that is a, a, a violent departure from the fundamentalist concept that, oh, yeah, it takes three great aeons to become a Buddha. So don't you worry about it, Sunny Jim. If you aren't getting results, just give it six or seven more lifetimes. But the fact is, um, Buddha said it can be done rather quickly if you, if you practice his teachings effectively. So bearing that in mind, um, I would daily by daily, I mean hourly, harass the Buddhas. <laughs> the question is like, what Bumi am I at? And not only would they give me a number, and then I, and then I was asking yes or no questions. So I would have to say, is it the first Bumi? Is it the second Bumi? Is it the third Bumi? And because I was impatient, I would break it down to seven decimal points and write it in a journal. Mm. <laughs> really, just absurdly goal-oriented. And the funny thing is that the only way you can ever escape the ninth boomy, the only way you can finally get to the tenth boomy, is to learn to balance enthusiasm with peace and letting go. Because if you're just mired in peace, you're not gonna, you're just gonna veg out, you know, uh, like teaching song on a couch, you know. And if you're stuck in enthusiasm, well, that's too much grip. It can be too much grasping. 
So striking that balance was the key to um, ascending beyond the ninth boomy. Mm. And so once I accomplished the sixth boomy, both a happy day and an annoying day, because then when I was someone, I finally I was dialoguing and um, was told I accomplished six boomy. It suddenly dawned on me that maybe I should ask where my teachers were at, and so I did, and I started writing down where they're at, and then I reorganized my bookshelf, and it's like, well, no wonder this teacher is disagreeing with that teacher; they're on different boomies, and then I. I learned that all my teachers, my highest teachers, were on the sixth level, and but that none of them had sent it, ascended beyond that. So from that point on, I had to write, uh, rely exclusively on the teramas, as I say in Tibet, or the psychic downloads. And I'm happy to know I'm not the only monk who's ever done that. In India, to famous uh, a famous monk. Uh, Chandra Gomin, I'm sorry, Chandra Kirti, and his patron, the householder Chandra Gomin, also did that. In Tibet, the most famous Tibetan Dharma practitioner, Milarepa, did that. Um, the founder of the Gelug sect, which gave us the Dalai Lamas, Tsongkhapa, did that. And uh, arguably the savior of the Nyingma sect, uh, Jigme Lingpa, did that. He was an average Dharma practitioner, nothing really special. Um, but he began receiving visions from a, a teachings from a Buddhist scholar who had been dead for three centuries. Mm. <laughs> and by applying them to his own life and then sharing them with others, he revived an entire sect of Tibetan Buddhism. And in Tibet, one of the most popular names for a monk is Jigme. Because, as homage to Jigme Lingpa, the Tertan, who received psychic transmissions and applied them in such a way, he caused a renaissance in Tibet. So that's how I got one of my names, because I, too, am a silly Tertan. <laughs> a laughing, silly Tertan. Okay. <laughs> Um, so, so now you've studied so many different areas. I mean, is there one that you tend to gravitate to more in your life and in well, your teachings? I mean, at, at this present time, because things continue to evolve. So, well, mm -hmm. so here's the deal. One of the things that affected me deeply was, uh, the, Neo-Ericksonians. So there was a great hypnotherapist named Milton Erickson who invented the gentle hypnosis, where instead of going in there and just hammering people and commanding them what to think and feel and experience, you would use stories or you would ask questions. You, you, for instance, instead of saying, you will, you, you use things like you could, you might, perhaps. And he, he opened up a new branch of practical psychology. One of my neurolinguistic teachers, uh, Paul Sheely, if I remember correctly, um, has a, a series of then cassettes, now MP3 files you can buy, 
And if you listen to them very carefully and, and jot them down on a piece of paper, you can notice patterns in the way he spoke. And so learning the power of could, the power of gentle wording helped a lot. The ancient Chan practitioners used rhetorical questions in their contemplations. So marrying the power of could with rhetorical questions was profoundly powerful. Um, you're a red-blooded American gal. You were raised here in the U.S. of A. I'm sure you saw one, if not several, Pink Panther movies. Is that fair to say? Well, I have to tell you, I'm You've not an American seen... girl. I'm actually oh. a Canadian girl. And uh, the, 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 the Pink Panthers, are they were mainly British. <laughs> With Peter Sellers. <laughs> yes, of course I saw the Pink Panther movies. They're brilliant. In one of them. Clouseau's boss is released from the insane asylum after and it's his final interview with his psychiatrist. And his psychiatrist prompts him and says, tell us now, what is your affirmation? Every day and every way, I'm getting better and better. And of course he does. And he goes insane and kills much people. But anyway, my point is this. Affirmations don't work. Why? Why don't they work? Because affirmations are lies we tell ourselves. And our inner wisdom, our inner Bart Simpson says, hey man, eat my shorts. Imagine this, if you will. Our helpless fellow has left his cell phone at home. He's stuck in the 101 at rush hour, and he's going to miss the most important meeting of his life. It's gridlock. He can't even get off the freeway to use a ridiculous payphone. And as he grabs his steering wheel with white knuckle intensity, he lifts his head to the heavens and says, I feel peaceful and serene. And he's not, he's not really changing the way he feels by doing that. Affirmations don't work. They're like, you know, two locomotives on the same track hitting each other head on. You know, our will and our experience, we can't shift reality that way. But through the cunning use of rhetorical, assumptive, well-worded questions, we can create profound shifts. For instance, wouldn't it be cool, wouldn't it be neat if each of us had within our minds a mechanism that just loved answering questions? It didn't care if, it, if its answers were correct, incorrect, or irrational. It just wanted to answer the questions, kind of like, you know, uh, a serving machine on a tennis court that's run amok. It's just launching the balls. It doesn't care if someone's there or not. It just wants to launch the balls. That, that mechanism's the same way. If we can ask the right questions... That we can change the assumptions that our mind is using. May I give you an example? Oh, please do. So here's an example. Now, this is going to be, I'm going to ask you a question, and we're going to have to open wide the treasure trove of vulnerability for our beautiful host. Do you remember your first experience of unrequited love? It could have been Tim Selleck, who didn't see, feel the same way about you as you felt about him when you were six. Hmm. That's right, folks. She's never been turned down. 
<laughs> Take a number on the dance card. No. <laughs> uh, uh, boy, I I don't know, five, six years you old. Remember, you remember that individual's name? Uh, Mark, I do believe. That was a long time ago. Mark, who's who in your journals is now known as Mark the Fuma. <laughs> <laughs> it's too much. <laughs> when I was in what was it, um, sixth grade. Sixth That's grade. What? I was talking six years old. <laughs> Late bloomer, huh? No. <laughs> so there I was in sixth grade in love with the the fairy princess like Terry Fink who earnestly desired that I stopped breathing and stopped noticing her and really all that kind well, of Well, you have stuff. quite a history with women. I want you to stop breathing and thinking. <laughs> so I would come home and you know the wonderful way that kids will demonstrate what they feel. They'll do the, the walk of sorrow where their feet are flat and they're like... <sighs> You know that one? I'm sure you've seen that. I come home and I ask the rhetorical question, why doesn't Terry love me? And the, the problem, that was an assumptive question. And the assumption of that question was that Terry didn't love me. And every time my subconscious mind attempted to answer that question, whether or not the answers percolated up to my conscious brain, my subconscious brain was reinforcing the assumption that she didn't love me. Mm-hmm. And I got to tell you, that did not fill my little heart with cheer at all. So what I've learned is that one of the easiest ways to install beliefs is not through repetition or affirmation, but through the cunning use of marrying um, rhetorical, well-worded questions with um, an enlightened view of pulmonary physiology. May I explore that a bit further? Uh, please do. So here's the deal. It's been taught to me, it's been shown to me that whether we know it or not, whether we feel it or not, on every in-breath, we tighten up even just a little bit. And you guessed it, on the out-breath, the opposite occurs. We relax even just a little bit. The <clears throat> spiritual application of tightening our body is tightening our attention or simply noticing the spiritual application of relaxing our body is relaxing our grasp on our experience or simply letting go. And so, arguably, the essence of the spiritual path, the path of awareness and letting go, or the path of love and letting go, or the path of bliss and letting go, is found on every um, on the set of every in-breath and every out-breath. So if we can use silent, rhetorical, well-worded, assumptive questions on the in-breath and relax or tune into our relaxation tendencies that are already latent on the out-breath, we can rapidly evolve on the path. And that is really, really exciting. In the fundamentalist approach to Buddhism, we often try to should our way into compassion. 
and love, or we try to logic our way into compassion and love. And of course, should reminds me of uh, McCoy on Star Trek and logic, <laughs> of course, reminds me of, you guessed it, our friend Spock. Um, but if we use our physiology, if we use our viscera the right way in those questions, we can effortlessly assimilate the essence of all the Buddha taught, whether we're talking about the sutric teachings or the tantric teachings. And that's very, very mm. exciting. Mm. May I give you an now, example? Oh, go well, on. I was going to say, now, now um, would one take the same approach dealing with chronic pain? Exactly. So the first thing, let's start with the wisdom teaching. The wisdom of letting go. So when you're in pain, the, the scariest question, the question to which we feel the strongest aversion can be quite simply, what am I feeling? Because oh, who was that uh, the late stand-up comic who screamed a lot into the microphone? The late stand-up comic? Yeah, he was blonde. Um, mm. Oh, well. Anyway, there is an inner stand-up comic screaming on the stage of our heart saying, Don't answer that question! It's horrible! <laughs> Heal me! Kill me now! <laughs> you know? And we've all, no, we, hopefully all, we haven't, but some of us in chronic pain have had those episodes where we really were praying for our demise, where we're in too much pain. Um, other of us, others of us in chronic pain or with chronic disease don't necessarily long for death, but we dread the next um, surprise our body could have in store for us. And so we could feel, in addition to the physical pain, we could feel great emotional dread and sorrow and fear. And yes, even rage, you know. Um, so there is both a physiological and an emotional component to the sufferings of chronic disease and pain. Um, so when we ask the question, um, well, for if I may just jump back for a second, quick caveat. I like to keep my questions short, maybe three syllables on each in-breath and perhaps three syllables on every out-breath. Um, and therefore, people have noticed that <laughs> Lama Jigme's silent questions are where good grammar goes to die. <laughs> and so instead of asking the question, you know, what physical and emotional sensations am I now experiencing in this present fleeting moment? That's too many syllables. We'd simply ask, what feeling on the out-breath we would intend releasing? Now, that remember, this is not an affirmation. It's on the out-breath where our body is already designed to let go on the out-breath. And so what we're just doing is marrying our intention with our body's natural processes. And on the in-breath, we're asking a rhetorical question. What if there were two types of questions? Uh, difficult questions that required an actual answer and easy questions that, you, that don't require an answer that are simply asked for effect. Questions that maybe we could even play with metaphysically and say, what if we're not really asking ourselves this question? 
what if we're asking the universe this question, or if we're very playful, when we're asking the librarians of the Akashic Records what this answer is. And what if the power came not in the answer, but in the visceral adjustments that take place? So on the in-breath, we could ask what feeling, on the out-breath, releasing. And the cool irony is that there's a direct relationship. The deeper our in-breath, more profound the relaxation we'll experience on the out-breath. Well, so we could do that three times and then move on to the next question. How can this be funny? Now, a lot of people say, what? You think this is funny? They turn into an angry guy from New Jersey. You think this is funny? You want to do this dance? Come on, let's do this dance. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> that's when the pain increases <laughs> exactly and the blood pressure I guess that's, um, there's this great dialogue in the Keanu Reeves movie Constantine which came out oh gosh about eight years ago nine years ago and you know a cop a female cop is shouting at Constantine, saying, what? You think it's funny? You think it's a joke when men beat their wives to death? You think it's a joke when children are abused and neglected to death? And of course, these things aren't funny. Our suffering isn't funny. Illness and emotional suffering is not funny. However, in the essential teachings of Buddha, the fourth power of freedom is that of joy. And the easiest way for us to access joy is through exploring humor and laughter. And if you ask the right question, your mind can start observing things that are funny. And it might be horrible humor. It might be inappropriate humor. But if it helps you move forward, it doesn't matter. So we can ask the second question, how could this on the in-breath be funny on the out-breath? And we could play with that three times. And for the third question, we could ask, uh, or we could not ask, but just intend, grin with lips, releasing. Play with that three times. Maybe then grin with cheeks, releasing. And maybe then grin with eyes. And when I say grin with eyes, I don't mean in a scary men in black way, <laughs> but, you know, making the little crow's feet at the outermost corners of your eyes. I once had a teacher and said, a smile wasn't a smile. Unless it migrated from the corners of your mouth through the apples of your cheeks to the corners of your eyes. And by doing that, it sends profound physiological messages to your entire endocrine system, which makes it much easier to let go. When people are laughing, they let go of things. They drop things. Sometimes they, they let go of their bodily control and make them socially unacceptable noises. <laughs> Amazing things happen when we're laughter. And that doesn't mean we're going to start laughing out loud in the middle of a cancer ward. But it does mean part of our mind, part of our body could lighten up and release its grasp upon our suffering and the preconceptions that support that suffering even just a little bit. And at this point, we get to the very cool question, not a question, but intention. Noticing on the in-breath, relaxing on the out-breath. Now, obviously, this is just a handful of questions. 
but there are wisdom questions. And when we talk about wisdom in Buddhism, we're not talking about the wisdom to create a longer lasting life. Well, we're talking <laughs> about the wisdom of letting go, not repressing, not suppressing, not um, repressing, not becoming more neurotic, not indulging and in becoming uh, an adult infant. But find that middle ground where we're aware of what we're feeling physically and emotionally, but we are embracing the intention to relax on the out-breath. That can be incredibly powerful. I'd like to give you a quick illustration. If it, I'm going to take a guess that approximately 50% of your audience are men. And as men, we love a woman, we love a partner, and that partner's crying about something. We want to fix it. We want to fix it fast because we love them and we don't like them suffering. Who does? But sometimes our partner just wants to be heard. And there are entire books written on it. But sometimes you need an easy tool. And what I found is that sometimes when my partner needs to be heard and uh, I've already heard it and I'm feeling what they're feeling vicariously, it's making me nuts. I put the center of my right palm my partner's up, my, my tantric partner's upper chest. And there's nothing really uh, tingly and fun in the upper chest, just your timeless. <laughs> so I put my, the center of my right palm upon her upper chest. And on the in breath, I ask, um, what feeling? On the out breath, I intend releasing. Do that three times. And it helps me to share that space with her that she's in help her feel heard. And this works for all men. And what makes it even more powerful is if we think of our breath in terms of three components, kind of like an Oreo cookie. You got, by the way, I'm not a proponent of Oreo cookies. I'm, <laughs> Thank I'm a you. proponent of apples. <laughs> but Oreo cookies are a great paradigm because you get the black bit, you get the, the white bit, you get the black bit. And that's a lot like our breathing. The first bit is the in-breath. The second breath is bit, is the out breath. The third bit is the pause breath before the next in breath. And if you hang out there for just one pulse, two pulse, it can have a very deepening effect. And that's what I meant by the cunning use of esoteric pulmonary or breathing skills. Now, this isn't yoga, nothing wrong with yoga, but this is different. This isn't yoga. This is not pranayama. This is very gentle. What we're trying to do is not force a contrivance upon our physiology, but notice the mechanisms already latent, already hidden within our body, that by using what's already there, our journey on the path can be much quicker. So now that we've softened up our experience of the pain, and let's pretend, um, let's pretend it's chronic muscle spasms of the neck or the longus dorsi or the upper inferior uh, trapezius, perhaps the lumbar region. You know, let's pretend it's a chronic pain. And this is applicable to anything, but I want to pull it out of the realm of the generic into the realm of the specific. And it can be helpful now to turn our attention to compassion. And compassion is learning to give a flip about others. Whether we'd like to admit it or not, we all have the selfish bastard gene. <laughs> Screw you guys, I'm going home. 
just like Cartman, Eric Cartman on South Park. And but we can use logic and we can use assumptive rhetorical questions to inject Buddhist philosophy that helps to loosen our grip on that selfish momentum. Because if we just try to impose our will on our own selfishness, it's just going to act like a cranky curmudgeon. It's just, it's not going to go away. It's going to hunker down and dig in. Um, which reminds me of a terrible story from the U.S. military. <laughs> our, our geniuses, our brain trust in the U.S. military got the idea that we could use ultra-low sound frequencies to make uh, troops, enemy troops, run away. Well, no. What they did is they gave them explosive diarrhea. And men don't run away with their trousers around their knees. <laughs> They're like, I will defend this outhouse to my death. <laughs> and that's what happens with our selfishness. It's the same way. It's got its pants around its angles, and it's cranky as hell. It's not going anywhere. But <laughs> we can slip a question in there. And the first question could be this. It's based on this wonderful teaching. One of my teachers, the teacher was named Piazzo, and that's where I got my, my, my third name. Lama Jigme Piazza was from him. He quoted uh, Atisha, a, a great Tibetan, I'm sorry, a great Indian who brought the Dharma to Tibet, who said that the Buddha said, I've never seen a living being who is not the mother of every other living being. Now, when he said mother, he meant M O T H E R. He didn't mean M U T H E R H A. He wasn't saying, <laughs> I never met a living being who wasn't the mother. <laughs> That's completely different. So he was basically saying that there's a real, that it can be very liberating emotionally to explore the possibility that we could have had multiple previous lives. And there we could then explore the possibility that in each of those lives that we've been a human, clearly we've had parents, at least biologically, had DNA contributors. And that if the number of living lifetimes we've had are limitless, are numberless, and the, therefore the number of mothers we've had are numberless. And how many living beings are there alive now? You guessed it, numberless. Now, is this flawless logic? No. But it's useful plaything to consider. And so the idea is, we can be very sentimental towards our own moms. None of us had Carol Brady for a mother. You know, some of us had Attila the Hun for a mother. <laughs> but she's still our mother. She still gestated us for nine months, pushed us out, wiped our tosses, fed us, and clothed us. Even if she was a dreadful human being, we, we have incredible sentimentality, or at least the potential or incredible sentimentality towards our, towards our own mother. So we could capitalize that upon that with the question, how could each, in breath, be kind mom on the out-breath? And you play with that three times, really breathing deeply, really relaxing. Next question. Hinduism sometimes talks about oneness. Buddhism talks about non-duality. Oh, 
I used, they used to screw me the wrong way. As I sound like, well, that's just being persnickety. But they have a different perspective. And so in the compassion teachings, also called the conventional wisdom teachings, the oneness goes like this. How could we each be the same? Each of us hate suffering. That's how we're the same. You can say, wait, wait, wait. Ha, ha, ha. How about a masochist? All a masochist is, is someone who puts a, a different label. For some, perhaps for a masochist, you know, not receiving pain at a certain time is painful. It's like the old joke. If a masochist says, hurt me, hurt me, what does it say to say? No. <laughs> In that circumstance, and this may be comical, I may be being insensitive to the BDSM folks, and if that's the case, I apologize. Please don't punish me. <laughs> No. <laughs> exactly. But um, if in that case where a masochist is in a controlled environment where he feels safe and he wants a little whipping and he doesn't get a whipping, he feels let down. And for him, that moment, the absence of whipping is suffering. So mm-hmm. however we label suffering is, we don't want it. Whatever pleasure is, we want more. That's the great common denominator. And when we explore how we really are all similar in that... It makes it easier for us to feel compassion and love. So the three-syllable question could be, um, why could each hate their pain? And we don't want to get lost in the idea, is hate really good, is it really bad? We all hate something. We don't like pain. We don't like a loved one's pain. On a visceral, precognitive, brainstem level, pain bad. (laughs) are good (laughs) Um, so we explore that and after exploring that we come to our our third compassion question which could be how could each be the same these are rhetorical questions even though we're setting our inner brain up for the obvious answer how could each be the same and then we come to our real compassion question which is why take pain Releasing. Now, this is a truly scary question for most people, because most people say, what? I'm in pain, and I'm going to take pain? Bite me. I'm not taking anybody's pain. I got enough of my own. This does not sound safe. Who is this guy? <laughs> I mean, I've got a baseball bat with his name on it telling me to take pain. What's wrong with him? So here's <laughs> the deal. Compassion sees someone suffering and longs, and the causes of that suffering and longs, to take that suffering away. Sometimes we can take the suffering away physically, like when a friend has a splinter and we have the tweezers we can pull out the splinter. Sometimes we can only take the suffering away metaphysically or through intention. But wait, what about the law of attraction? Am I bringing more pain to myself? Glad you ask. Because in the Buddhist Mahayana teachings, we're told that the cultivation of compassion does many things, including, number one, purifies our bad karma, karma, and number two, multiplies or increases our good karma. So you can almost assume that the compassion inherent in intending to take away other people's pain protects us from the pain. No, is that some dogma that you have to believe? Not at all. That's simply an idea to play with. And here's my basic thing. How do you know 
If Lama Jigme is not some demon born from hell, come to drag your soul to the seventh circle. Good question. <laughs> and here's the answer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You'll learn a technique. Maybe a 12-minute technique. You practice it once every morning, once every evening for six consecutive consecutive days. And by the way, if you can't do that, I'm the least of your problems. Number three, on the, after completing the the twelfth practice at the end of the sixth day, you look at your results. You got horrendous results. <laughs> Forget me. Go find a better teacher. You got good results. Come back. Get more teachings. It's very simple. It's non-mystical. It's very pragmatic, and that. Paradigm is illustrated in an ancient text from the Theravadan canon known as the Sutta of the Kalimas Dilemma. The proof of the teachings is in their application. The proof of the teacher is in the application of his teachings. Very simple. So we play with these things. The test of the teachings is not our logic. It's not our intuition. It's the results they generate because any good scientist will tell you a lot of experimental data is counterintuitive. It was unpredicted. It's even accidental. That's how they learned that ceramic is an ultra conductor or superconductor. They used to use it as an insulator. So logic, intuition, nice, not the ultimate test of truth. The results are. So getting back to the fourth compassion question, why take pain? releasing. So we played with four questions about compassion. Now we're going to play with four questions about love. And you can say compassion, love, tomato, tomato. Let's call the whole thing off. But there is a difference. What if both compassion and love could be two sides of the same coin? And if you're a Jew like me, I'm thinking about Hanukkah gelt. You know, the chocolate with the wrapper and you clay dreidel with it. Yeah, I know. It only takes place in the Sandler videos, but it's kind of a fun myth, isn't it? Anyway, two sides of the same chocolate-covered coin. One side is compassion. It sees suffering in its causes, wants to take it away. The other is love. It sees a need and it wants to fill that need in the most wonderful, empowering way. Um, there are some people who, who are basically selfish bastards and they devise high-sounding dogma to justify their selfish bastardness. Things like, well, I cannot interfere with someone's suffering lest they fail to work out their karma. Ah, karma will take care of itself. Help them. <laughs> That's the Buddhist perspective. And yes, as far as I'm concerned, Buddha did speak like my grandmother. <laughs> you got a point with that. <laughs> so... <laughs> So, the love, we start off very similarly. Um, why, could, well, why could everyone love to feel the soothing in their body? Which is too many syllables. So, we can just make, ask the question, um, why could each long for soothe? Bad grammar, good idea. Play, play with that three times. And then um, you could ask, how could each be the same because no one everyone wants to be seen whether it's physically or emotionally we all want to be seen so now that we've created a common ground again we take it a step further this is the area where we at we before we dealt with mccoy now we're going to deal with spock perhaps you remember the wrath of khan 
You know, the movie that he even mentioned on Seinfeld and started crying. Hell of a thing when they killed Spock. Hell of a thing. <laughs> and the, the theme that, that the utterance that uh, Spock repeated was the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. We all have that narcissistic gene that says, it's all about me. <laughs> but it's not. And even though it might feel that way, and some people, a lot of people try to say, well, we're all really the same. We're all one person, so it is about me. Simmer down. Here's how we explore it from the Buddhist perspective. Mathematically, there's one of you and billions upon billions upon billions, so many billions would make Carl Sagan, bless his heart, if he's still alive, dizzy. Other living beings, humanoids on this and other planets, not to mention non-human life forms, you know, air, uh, birds of the air, beasts of the sea, bugs in the soil, and yes, microscopic entities in our bodies. Here's a grotesque little fact. Cell for cell, there are only one-tenth of the cells in this body and in your body or yours. The rest are residents. That's right, lady. You're a condo complex. <laughs> <laughs> See, that takes us all the way back to our magical medical tour where we've learned of, of all those wonderful little migrating animals in us. <laughs> yes. And in Tonka, we find a way to bless them, but that's a future class. So here's mm. the deal. We ask... Um, how could all uh, how could all be more than me? And that's mathematically simple. You know, that's obviously the idea is a billion plus is more than one. If you don't get that, go back to first grade. <laughs> so how could all be more than me? And so once again, we're creating we're these contemplations are creating emotional leverage where it's easier to give a flying hoot about others. And then the fourth love meditation would simply be why give soothe releasing. And you could say, but wait, I don't have any soothing to give. I'm a cranky curmudgeon. I just last Tuesday I begged the heavens to kill me, and Zeus did not throw any lightning bolts in my tush. I think he owes me an apology. But the fact is, love is the intention to meet a need. And by generating that intention, create the good karma to the karmic currency to meet that need if not physically then metaphysically and that might not be a fact to believe that's a fun idea to play with and if you, you, you may be intuiting right now that i'm not real big on the dogma i love because I'm, I'm, I'm a liberal i'm big on the idea that we gently play with and explore because in of any belief mechanism there is a contrivance that breeds rigidity, which is the antithesis of letting go. So if you want to let go, you can't use that which generates grasping. That's like doinking in the name of virginity. That's a lot of fun, but not terribly effective. <laughs> so I have a question. Why, well, why so, in groups of three? Um. Three, there are many, many reasons we can get into numerology, but here's the easy one. You can count to three without using your fingers. Mm -hmm. Three is a prime number. Two is a prime number. One is almost a prime number, depending on your definition of prime number. They're easy to count. Okay. You, get, you, know, you get beyond three, it gets tougher to count without you visualizing a geometric uh, matrix or something like that. Three works really good. 
uh, the number I've received through Termas, and it's also experientially in my work on myself and on my clients and my students, it works really, really well. So we've mm-hmm. dealt with the compassion that takes away suffering, the love that gives blessing. Now we're going to marry the two because I'm a tantrika and we're all about this. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so at the first thing we did, and there's an ancient text which says, mount the two, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, mount the two upon the breath. So that's what we're going to do. The next exercise, we're just going to play with our body for a second, and not in the, not in the pubescent way. The, the exercise is um, how, I'm sorry, um, in through nose, out through pores. And this is not an affirmation. This is simply an intention. Huge difference. Affirmation talks about things that have already happened or that are happening now. Intention is simply, hey, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this, but this is my will. It's much more relaxed, hip, and groovy. So just that, we just tune into our nose breathing for a second. Now, obviously, we can't breathe out through our pores without having an aneurysm. So this is what we call, this is what us big boys call hyperbole or hyperbole, depending upon how you like to pronounce things. So when we relax on the out-breath, we feel sensations not only in our muscle, but our fascia and our skin. And so we're creating the intention that the breath is leaving through our pores. We don't have to visualize it. It's simply an intention. So in through nose, out through pores. Having done that, you guessed it, for three breaths. And now it gets juicy. Now we get to the thing we've been, we've been sprinting towards. That is the essence of the union of taking and giving. So the in-breath, take, pain, smoke. And you can visualize it. Our intended black smoke comes up your nostrils. You know, the way you take a deep breath when your mom's cooking cookies and you're, and you're walking through the kitchen. You know, we're all, we're all deep breathing experts at that moment. And on the out-breath, um, give, soothe, light. And you can imagine or simply conceptualize and pretend that through the 86,000 pores of your skin, light's coming up out in every conceivable direction and pervading every being and every realm and giving them the soothing they require. So that black smoke is taking away everyone's pain, that light is giving everyone the soothing they require. Now, let's be... Oh, gosh. I can't think of any word other than cranky curmudgeons. Let's be a curmudgeon for a second. Let's be skeptical. I don't think I'm helping anyone. I don't care what those fuckocked uh, uh, particle physicists say about things being interconnected. It's just me and everyone else can go fly a kite. That was Gilbert Godfrey, who joined us for a moment. So here's the deal. Even if that was true or accurate, then at the very least, we're training ourselves in the habit energies of compassion and love, which are going to make us happier, which are excellent for our karma, fantastic for our body. But I like the idea that all of them particle physicists are onto something and that everything being a phenomena is dependent upon every other being, thing being a phenomena and affects every other thing being a phenomena. Do I know that? No. Is that an empowering idea to play with? 
Yeah, sure, you betcha. (laughs) (laughs) And so by playing with that, all of a sudden, in the midst of your pain, whether it's physical or emotional, you found a way to 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 diminish your bad karma, multiply a good karma, fill yourself up, or at least increase the bliss of love and compassion. And then you can return to letting go. And so what, now that you've done, let's say, the eight compassion exercises, and let's say, because I'm just doing this off my head, the, the four or five wisdom exercises, then you can go back and forth between their essence. You can go back and forth between um, noticing, relaxing, maybe three times, and then back to um, take pain and smoke, give soothe light three times, and back and forth. If your breathing is good, you're watching your pauses, you know, the in-breath, out-breath, pause thing, in just a few minutes, you will have powerfully taken the edge off. Now, is this a substitute for getting help from people who are healthcare professionals? Of course not! But this is probably better than taking a handful of Advil. Probably, <laughs> probably better than you know, macking on the opates. <laughs> I don't know about you, opates don't work on me, they just make me silly and constipated, but the pain's fine. <laughs> well, I, I do believe, like everything, it just takes uh, if you've not tried this before, it just takes time to, as as uh, Lama Jigme says, you know, just uh takes time to integrate it into your daily schedule and see if it works after six days and, and really focus and, and give that a shot, right? So here's the deal. I, I am not a used car salesman. If you have a spiritual teacher in your life, ask him, you know, let them hear this MP3 or this download and ask them to do it with you. If they feel comfortable to do it with you, if they have enough time in their schedule and they love you enough and all that kind of good stuff and they like this technique, they'll do it with you or give you their version of it. Love and wisdom is great. Love and letting go is the real thing we're playing with here. If you don't have one, then find one. You know, if you can't find one, I'll be glad to help you. Uh, you I'm uh, I'm sure this beautiful lady interviewing me Christina is going to give you contact information. You can find me on YouTube or Facebook. I'll be glad to work with you, either in person or over the phone. Um, Or over Skype. Or over Skype. (laughs) I got it. Um, But the key is, it's been said that Buddha gave 84,000 discourses. That sounds like hyperbole, but we'll call it that. The essence of those 84,000 discourses arguably would be um, wisdom, peace, love, and joy. That's why in tantric circles, the Buddha of compassion is depicted as having four arms. The essence of those four teachings are simply love and the wisdom of letting go. These are powerful tools that can help you for free. You know, and you can use, you can practice them anywhere. If you're having a bad day at work, you can go into the bathroom and sit inside your, the stall and no one will know that you're doing this. It can help. If you're having a tough day, you can go to your, your sit in your car at your coffee break or your lunch break, do this for a few minutes, and it can make the day more workable. All, most of us, most of us who were raised in the 70s saw the Hulk 
We saw <laughs> Dr. David Banner's transformation. This is what Dr. David Banner was looking for. He would have killed to use this technique. And now, you look, you get it for free. How nice is that? <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, uh, our laughing Jewish Lama. <laughs> <laughs> this has been a fun ride with you. It's uh, definitely a pleasure. And um, you've shared with us uh, your portion of a little, I'm sure, just a little portion of your wisdom here. And we would, we are definitely past our hour, but all good. <laughs> um, thank you so much, really, for honoring us today. We, we, we really appreciate uh, your gifts of uh, direction on this new form of uh, meditation and the simplicity of it. And we hope that, of course, it will help many of you out there with your chronic pain or, or your bad day, as simple as that. And of course, we'd like to thank Segovia Smith and the Yoga Hub team for making all this possible for us. And to each and every one of you for joining us in this new platform of education and information. We're grateful for your continuous support and look forward to hearing your feedback on how we can serve you better. We invite you to join us live on Tuesdays for Magical Medical Tour at 10.30 a.m. Pacific, 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Wednesdays for Trinity of Life at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern, followed every other week with Flowing into Awareness with Anatara. We're always grateful and look forward to any feedback that you have. Come give us a call at 818-LET'S-TALK. 818-LET'S-TALK. Until next time, namaste. YHTV's Trinity of Life. Come join me, Christina Suzama, as I journey to find the many modalities that support individuals, from children to adults to elders, with topics ranging from health and wellness, meditation, and inspirational stories. I invite you to visit yogahub.tv every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern. You, I, I've heard you use the word safe. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that? Like, like, like an open class, um, no matter, no matter who goes in there. And it's not specifically, you know, a gay or lesbian, uh, directed class. I think it's a, it's a few things. Um, when I say safe, I mean that it's a place for you to be able to unpeel yourself and really allow your core to shine and really allow for you, for yourself to heal. And in order to heal, you need a safe place for that mm. to happen. So I provide a place for people to heal and to feel comfortable in and to open.